1999 The Podcast is a production of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts on movies, comics, and all things pop culture, head to cageclub.me. To contact us with questions, comments, or just to say hi, send us an email at 1999cageclub.me. You can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB and Joey at SoulPot. And you can follow the show on Twitter at 1999thepodcast. To support the show, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The show is written, produced, and edited by us. Welcome to 1999 The Podcast. I'm John Brooks. And I am Joey Lewandowski. And I hope you caught our first episode with author Brian Raftery. But today we begin the project of discussing the many, many amazing movies of 1999. So let's talk about how this podcast is going to unfold. So rather than just going through each movie chronologically, we're going to unpack these movies in rounds of nine. The first round will cover what Joey and I consider to be the essential 1999 movies. Well, to be fair, the first batch of essential. There's a lot of there's a lot of really good. In case you didn't know, dear listener to the podcast about 1999 movies, there's a lot of good movies from 1999. There are. So we have decided to uh, create a list of nine movies that are sort of the first, as Joey says, batch of essential movies. Uh, We're going to do a second round of essential movies in our second round of nine. Um, When we say essential, though, I want to make sure like we're not saying these are necessarily all the best movies or even the highest grossing movies. I think some of the criteria we used were like which ones have a kind of a lasting legacy, um, which ones were kind of revolutionary or definitive of the time. Anything else, Joey, that like... No, I just also want to say that like it's not necessarily our favorites. Like, you know, some, some of my favorites are definitely in this season, but there are some other movies that I really love that I would say are my favorites from the year that we're not getting to this season. So it's not like these are our nine favorites. I haven't even seen all nine of these yet. Um, so it's definitely a mixture of legacy and impact and import and all sorts of different metrics that don't really make sense, but also make perfect sense. And if you disagree with us, uh, feel free to um, express your disagreement. Uh, you can find us on 1999 The Podcast at Twitter, uh, or you can find us uh, on the old email um, at 1999 at cageclub.me. Uh, feel free to write us approving or angry emails. Tell us what you think. Um, as we go along. But uh, I think in general, Joey, our first nine movies are going to be somewhat um, uncontroversial in yeah. terms of uh, how how meaningful they are. So uh, that's how we're going to do it. We're going to then cover those nine movies in chronological order according to their wide release date. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, cool. So one of the tricky things about this is... Some of the movies we're going to cover in this podcast came out like in other countries in earlier years. Um, And some of them that we're not going to cover were still in the theaters in 1999. Um, Generally speaking, what we're going to do is just focus on the movies that had some kind of wide release or if it's an indie movie then um, U.S. independent theatrical release in the year 1999. Maybe we will break those rules uh, <laughs> once or twice. We'll see. But but that's that's sort of how we're going to try and um, arrange these movies in some order. Uh, so based on those criteria, uh, that means that coming in at number nine, uh, the wait at number round, nine. What are we saying at number nine? Are at we number one up? or number nine? The first up. I don't know. Number at number first. 
in a list of nine. The first movie we're covering, the episode title for this episode. Tied for first through ninth place mm-hmm. in our hearts. Uh, <laughs> the first movie we're going to cover uh, comes to us from March 31st of 1999. And that movie is none other than The Matrix. Well, if you've been living under a rock or in some other reality that was created by an evil uh, machine thing uh you might not know i guess (laughs) that the matrix uh was released on march 31st 1999 written and directed by the wachowskis and starring keanu reeves lawrence fishburne hugo weaving joe pantiliano uh the guy who tried to sell obi-wan death sticks in attack of the clones and at the time a relatively unknown actress named carrie ann moss correct me if i'm wrong this was carrie ann moss's first real big thing right because memento was a little bit later well so the only things that i know that she's been in other than matrix properties are memento and red planet which i have not seen but i can't i don't think i I think if you offered me a million dollars i don't think i can name confidently another carrie ann moss vehicle which is a shame because i really like her obviously from this movie but i also really like her in memento too so i don't know why i don't know her from things but right I don't know. Yeah, I guess she she must have been newer. Yeah, this was kind of her 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 breakthrough. And and Joey, I know that you um obviously have spent a lot of time talking about Keanu Reeves and his career. Um am I also right in remembering that this was sort of a not necessarily like a renaissance movie for him, but his career was kind of in a bit of a slump and this was kind of a a, a Keanu reemergence uh following the success of the only film ever made speed. So my co-host on Keanu club, Mike Manzi and I went through all of Keanu's movies several years ago. And Keanu started out cause we're like, Oh, he's got so many great movies. We love so many of his movies. And it took so long. Like there's some good stuff early. And then he's in high school for like nine or 10 projects. And I really lost like the will to like keep doing the project, but we kept going. He's got good stuff in the nineties, but he definitely hits a lull after speed where he's johnny mnemonic which kind of flops walk in the clouds which is not great chain reaction which is not great feeling minnesota which is not great last time i committed suicide not great then the devil's advocate which i love but is maybe not objectively good and then the matrix after a two-year hiatus so he had done both comedy and action and some drama pretty well in the late 80s early 90s and then Start, sort of struggles to find his footing kind of and find a project that really resonates with people and then takes what like 18 months to train for this movie and then you know changes cinema the matrix was a pretty massive success uh throughout its theatrical run internationally it grossed almost a half a billion dollars which in uh 1999 money is a lot adjusted for inflation i guess that's like four monkey jpegs i don't know uh how money works anymore but a lot of money and really kind of in a surprising way uh it was not expected to be one of the hugest draws that year um but it was sort of a surprise movie um in the u.s it made 171 million four hundred seventy nine thousand nine hundred thirty dollars in its domestic run thank you for being specific you bet uh making it the fifth highest grossing movie of that year domestically the matrix spent three weeks non-consecutively which is interesting at the number one spot in the domestic box office um that was the week of april 2nd through the 8th the 9th through the 15th and the 23rd through the 29th 
Do you know, by the way, or can you guess, and I probably won't if you don't know this, uh, what movie took it off of the Oh, I have no idea. There's that new like Wordle knockoff box office game. And I am terrible at that. Like I have a pretty good sense of when things came out year wise, but time of year wise, I have no idea, especially given the what will come up over and over again in this podcast that I was 11 or 12 almost entirely like the almost entire year I was 11 so I saw none of these in theaters so I have no memory of like oh I saw that like before I graduated or I saw that over the summer or whatever like I have no idea when anything happened yeah it, it's it's pretty uncommon that a movie loses number one and then comes back um it used to be a little bit more common it really doesn't happen much anymore at all i mean the only thing would happen now is if like there's a weekend where nothing happens and like they're like oh yeah spider-man won with like eight million dollars or whatever right like nobody saw it but like (laughs) whatever yeah so there is something that was going on in the days that it wasn't number one um i'll get to that in a second anyway the one that took it over for that one week uh was the um eddie murphy and martin lawrence vehicle life directed by the late great ted demi um and i say late great i can't believe he he died 20 years ago uh which blows my mind but uh that was actually the second best eddie murphy movie of that year um <laughs> was a pretty good year for eddie murphy movies actually when you when you think about it are we doing life because i don't know if i've heard of life uh we will do life eventually okay. it will it will it will make it are into we one doing of our rounds in the first couple of years i don't want to put you on the spot are we doing every movie that hit number one that's i'm sure we will eventually okay. yes so life will make it there um i definitely want to talk about the other eddie murphy movie of that year because that was one of my favorite movies ever um Whoa. certainly one of my favorite comedies of all time i won't say what it is uh, at the moment but yeah life took over um for a a week and then dropped back down and the matrix came back now interestingly what happened in the interim was columbine and ah. uh which was april the 20th of 1999 and uh, I remember that very, very well. And certainly um, it didn't put people really in much of a movie going mood. Um, that that particular massacre um, really affected the country. We have become sort of immune um, or numb to that now, uh, which is super depressing. Uh, but Columbine was a very, very big cultural moment. And The Matrix went back to number one immediately afterwards, uh, so from the from the week of the 23rd to the 29th, and it came back number one at $12 million, uh, which is fairly low. The next week, it was number two at the box office with just under $9 million and was replaced by a movie that most of us have now um, thankfully forgotten, uh, Entrapment, which spent its only weekend at number one opening at 20 million dollars or so but it went on to make a ton of money um in in its various releases and uh and and overseas um critically it did very well as well Uh, it has a 73 percent rating on metacritic Uh, that's a pretty high number for movies in metacritic um and an 88 percent on rotten tomatoes um there's one one major outlier there always is with the major critics, and that's Peter Travers from Rolling Stone, who was very, very lukewarm about The Matrix. 
I would love to know what he thinks of it now if he's changed his mind. But uh, most of the critics overall were uh, very enthusiastic, either in terms of it being sort of a fun movie or a genuinely great movie. Uh, Peter Travers just thought it was sort of um, overly heady and sort of boring. And uh, I maybe kind of agreed with him at the time. Uh, anyway, we'll we'll talk more about that when we get into our conversation. Lastly, the number one single at the time that The Matrix came out was Cher's Believe. Do you believe in love after love? Life after love? That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. That's what the nation thought was a good song. And then was replaced by, honestly, one of the songs, one of my least favorite songs of all time, um, though I love the group, uh, was TLC's No Scrubs, which uh-huh. is obviously their worst song. Um, and if you disagree again, uh, come at me. I'm willing to I'm willing to hear that. But yeah, I hate that song. So that sets the stage. Let's get to it. Uh, Joey, who's our guest for today's episode? Our guest today is former punter for the NFL team, my Minnesota Vikings, and also author and Warcraft enthusiast, Chris Cluey. Great. Can't wait to talk to him. Uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll be back with Chris Cluey to talk about The Matrix. A spy break? That's a Matrix joke. Ah, yeah, that's right. Hey, you want to get doomed? I'm Tessa. And I'm Nicole. And we have a spanking new podcast for your ear holes called Doom Generation. Listen in as two foul mouth biddies have an always casual, often comedic. What? I think we're funny. And sometimes chaotic conversation about the things that doomed us to be who we are today. Take a trip with us down nostalgia lane and we'll try not to veer off the road. Available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Doom Generation Pod and on Twitter at Doom Gen Pod. Later, Doomers. Welcome back. We are here with our special guest, Chris Cluey. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm great. So, Chris, uh, I, I wanted you to, to join us for a couple of reasons. One, um, I know you're a big nerd, uh, and The Matrix is a very big nerd landmark, so I'm interested to see what you have to say about it. Um, and you've also dabbled in cyberpunk yourself uh, in your your um, debut novel is is sort of in that genre. Um, and the other reason is that Joey is the biggest Vikings fan that I know. So um, I only know like four, but Joey is definitely the biggest of them. There you go. So, uh... <laughs> I'm just so honored to be talking to my favorite punter from my favorite football team. It just, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm, I'll take a sentences that no one has ever spoken for 800, Alex. <laughs> He's not actually making that up. That all that stuff is actually true. Uh, okay. I can attest to the fact that he's, <laughs> he's not just saying that. So um, anyway, welcome. We this is our uh, I guess kind of our maiden voyage. Um, we we this is our second episode, but the first actual movie that we're talking about. So. Um, that's I. I just broke a bottle of champagne over my laptop. You guys couldn't see that, but. Uh, um, christening the christening the ship uh with this one is the ship the nebuchadnezzar i will stop let's talk about the matrix so we're going to start uh we're going to go around the room as it were and um i i just wonder 
uh, I want everybody to sort of say when they first saw this movie and like what the experience of it was. I know, Chris, you and I are, are fairly close in age. I assume you saw it when it came out. So uh, 1999, you're what, like eight, 18, 19 years old at the time? Yeah, I would have been um, either a junior or senior in high school. So tell me about that experience. What was it? What was it like seeing The Matrix for the first time? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, my uh, my friends and I, uh, my high school friends, like we were all huge nerds, uh, you know, loved playing video games. Like we'd get together and have LAN parties, you know, back when you'd carry giant computer towers over to each other's houses, <laughs> stay up till ungodly hours playing like, you know, Quake or Doom or <laughs> whatever it happened to be. But yeah, we um like we had heard this movie was coming out and it it looked really cool. Right. It, it looked like, OK, here's a sci fi action movie that, you know, this bullet time thing, this looks amazing. And then we went and saw it in the theater and it like just absolutely blew our minds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, because, I mean, at, at that point, like bullet time obviously hadn't been used before. I mean, now you can see it in pretty much everything. But right. That was like a really revolutionary, you know, film technique uh, that the Wachowskis did. And then just the story itself was was really cool. Like it was a it. Not, you know, it's kind of like one of those classic timeless stories. It's not quite the hero's journey of, um, you know, like Star Wars or anything like that. But I mean, it's it's definitely that, okay, you know, yeah, you have the chosen one, but it's also the, you know, what what are you willing to put up with in your society? And like, what what are you willing to fight against to, to try and change? And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, no, it's just, I, I, I felt it was, it was pretty close to a flawless movie. Did you, do you remember the first time that you like, heard about it existing because that kind of I, I remember it kind of came out of nowhere um I, I read a lot of like ain't it cool news at the time right but like even i don't remember really it being on the radar i think we probably saw like some commercials on tv yeah. right so yeah. like that would have been maybe a month or a couple weeks before it came out and then right. you know, there's there's like some bus stop um advertisement <laughs> stuff and stuff <laughs> But yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was kind of, it was one of those things where like, we knew we wanted to see it, but we just, we didn't realize how good it was going to be. And the whole promo, mm-hmm. like the marketing push was just, what is the matrix, right? Like that was just, right. it's just teasing this thing that they're not even really filling you in on what it is. Yeah. It's well, I mean, and that's what makes like great movies great is that you can go into it completely blind and then, you know, there's this air of mystery and then the world that gets revealed or the story that gets revealed, you're just like, wow, that's so sweet. (laughs) Yeah. And it was, you know, along with like the Blair Witch Project, a movie that we will talk about later in this podcast. um, Yeah. It it had this like really interesting use of, um, new sort of marketing techniques at the time and using the internet right as a way of of uh marketing the film um the i think there was even like a website that you could go to that was like what is the matrix and then when you clicked on it it was just like a bunch of random like it was the if i remember it right was like the the the, the code falling and that sort of thing and like right that green screen even... favorite thing <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like that was just like oh cool okay uh i guess i don't know what the matrix is so now i have to go find out by um by seeing this movie but um, I do remember there being a very cool uh, advertising campaign for it. Um, Joey, what's what's your you're you're younger? I know The Matrix is your favorite movie ever. I think so. And and you've seen a lot of them, so that's uh-huh. that's uh, that's impressive. Uh, what was the first time? What was the first time you saw it? I know you, I know you didn't see it in the theater, right? Yeah, we we did the math. Uh, math is the wrong word, but I I don't think I've seen any film that we're going to cover for this podcast. I don't think I saw any of them in theaters because I was eleven and I just turned twelve at the very end of ninety nine. So basically, everything I saw after the fact. This was, I'm pretty sure, 
my first R-rated movie, which was very exciting. Then my friend had a birthday party either in 99 or in 2000, whenever it was out on DVD, and we watched it at his house. And I was just like, whoa, this is cool. But I still like didn't really get it. And then I just kept watching and watching and watching it. And then eventually, you know, for the sequels, I, w- I went with my dad to see them at midnight, uh, both Reloaded and Revolution. So like it quickly became a thing that like I shared with him. Um, but yeah, I, I watched this after the fact and I'd seen it so many times, like I had most of it memorized. And I think the experience that you guys probably had, and John, I want to hear yours next, but that that walking into a thing and not knowing what it is, when I was living in Austin and the Draft House showed all the Wachowskis movies over the course of a month, they had someone introduce the trilogy because I saw all three back to back one day and he was like, I know that everybody here for the most part, and I think we even did a show of hands, like everybody in the room had seen the first one. He's like, everybody's seen this, but try to think back, try to put yourself in that theater in 1999 that you've seen these weird commercials, these these weird ads, and you don't really know what this is. And like, we all know that, you know, Neo was the one and Trinity is this and blah, 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 but like, pretend that you don't. And I felt like that mindset really changed things for me. And it's kind of like, I, I, I wish that I was older. Like, I wish I, I'm sort of jealous of you guys in retrospect that you were able to walk into this theater completely blind and just see this thing that like broke yeah. your brain in real time like that's amazing in bullet time in, in bullet time yeah i think i think the only there's there's been two other theater experiences i've had like that um one was when my friends and i went to go see the original blade in the theaters and like that was yep. amazing because <laughs> like, yeah. no one expected like anything from that movie in for us, it was just kind of like, oh, cool. You know, it's a fighty movie. It has Wesley Snipes. Let's go check it out. And then just like the sound and the action and all of it was like, this film is phenomenal. And then um, I was, uh, when they re-released Star Wars, um, the the original right. episode four, five, and six, uh, got a chance to go see them in uh, the Irvine Spectrum. So at the time, it was like one of the biggest screens in <laughs> in the country. <laughs> and yeah, like, yeah. Like this, this theater could sit, I, I want to say it was like four or 500 people. I mean, it was massive. And like you, you hear the, you know, the intro come in and then the Star Destroyer goes overhead and like, and I'd seen Star Wars before, but like actually seeing it in the theater like that was just, mm-hmm. it was so cool. But yeah, like having that experience, like it, it kind of sucks that, you know, a lot of kids aren't going to get to have that experience because a theaters are kind of dying due to the pandemic <laughs> and B home systems are now so good where it's just like, right. Well, I have my couch in my fridge. Like, why am I going out? Yeah. And star Wars itself has, has moved very successfully like to television, which is interesting, right? Because mm-hmm. like they're doing these very big, very spectacular things and yeah, they're not in the theater, right? <laughs> it's it's yeah. really a strange new world i've had that conversation a lot about like the death of theaters and i feel like the worst movie experiences i've ever had have been in theaters like people talking or texting or just being obnoxious just generally (laughs) being people but also like the 50 best movie experiences i've ever had have all been in theaters too so like at home it's always like a b b plus maybe but like in a theater it could be terrible like you might just ruin the movie for you but also it could also be you know seeing star wars on the big screen or seeing the matrix for the first time or seeing blade for the first time being like holy like just that communal experience right so Mm. man yeah it's like well i I would say it's it's very similar to uh to sports games right like like being in a stadium like with all the people and you're reacting with each other like to you know the, the stuff that you're seeing and witnessing in real time and I mean, there's like for for the really good films and like The Matrix was one of those films, uh, at least the showing I went to go see, like the audience was invested in it. <laughs> like, you know, you'd hear people like cheering or, you know, gasping or whatever. 
And I mean, and that that's pretty cool to, to get the feeling like that because there aren't very many movies that can pull that off. John, what about you? What was your? I'm I'm assuming you saw this in theaters. I did, I did, and and we've so we've talked a lot about the Matrix in different podcasts. Uh, you and I uh-huh. have, um, and we haven't really talked so much about the just experience of watching it, which is, I, you know, sort of why I wanted to have this conversation. Um, and I've alluded to the fact that, like, I didn't actually love The Matrix the first time through. Um, like, when it came out, I wasn't all that enamored with it. And I, I will tell you why, because I think that this important context. Um, Chris, I'm glad you brought up Blade, because that's one of the things where I was like, oh, it's kind of like Blade. <laughs> um, I remember seeing that like a year earlier and or, or two years earlier, but somewhere in that ballpark. Um, and that really a lot of the stylistic sort of um, action sequences and just sort of aesthetic of the Matrix. I was like, yeah, this is kind of like Blade. Um, I'd also seen the Wachowskis other movie Bound before that. And I thought that was a really cool movie. And so I wasn't like the the whole aesthetic wasn't new to me. Um and then I, I really, I kind of undersold what they were going for because I felt that a lot of the first Matrix was a lot of the sort of, you know, kind of Cartesian, like na- na- nature of existence stuff that I'd seen in like the Truman Show and Dark City, like the year before mm-hmm. that. And and I was like, kind of underwhelmed. And I also think a lot of it was like, I probably saw it like three weeks after it came out the first time. Um, I was in college, I was busy, and like a lot of my friends went to go see it the opening weekend. Like, it's the best thing ever. Like, bro, <laughs> you know, it's blow your mind. And and I was like, oh, cool, can't wait. And uh, I guess I I I was kind of the victim of some hype. Um, so it was I was really lukewarm about it, honestly, for 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 quite a while. And it took until reloaded for me to really fall in love with the with the whole series and like you know, Joey knows that I'm a big fan of like the entire series up and up through the, the fourth one. Um, I, I just love them, but I really had to kind of reevaluate it. Um, so to me, like my memory of the matrix is a lot more to do with the sort of the cultural moment that it was. And, and, and this weird, like kind of stealing the thunder from the Phantom Menace, in what was supposed to be the Phantom Menace is like, <laughs> it was supposed to be the only movie of that year, which is <laughs> right? wild to think about, right? Um, that, that's that's what I one remember. One of these movies but... is going to be amazing. One of them is going to be terrible. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which one do you think is which? <laughs> and I, I love the Phantom Menace now um, for, for what it is. And like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful movie aesthetically. Like, it's beautiful yeah, it's shot. just not a good movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's obviously a lot of things about it. We're, we'll, we're going to do an episode about the Phantom Menace later. So, so oh, nice. uh, we'll hold that thought. <laughs> but yeah, to me, it was like, I, I just, I didn't get it. And I, and I definitely undersold it. There's a lot more going on there than I thought there was right in the moment. And um, I couldn't really pull that apart until I saw the second and third movie, which by the way, are like the movies that completely alienated. So wait, so hold on. So it took you three or four years to really, for this to click into place. Yeah, I think so. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I was, yeah. I just sort of, I was like, it was cool. And like, it's good. And like, it's a fun action movie and it's, and it's a good sci-fi movie, but like nothing I haven't seen before and i was wrong because again the second and third movie made me realize oh there's a lot more that i didn't see the first time that they're actually tricks they're pulling here um and i I want to talk a little bit about some of the sort of backlash (laughs) the way this movie sort of shifted within um the sort of culture it appealed to um chris 
first of all, I'm going to ask you what 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 are you what's your sort of relationship to the rest of the Matrix canon? Um, I enjoyed uh, watching the second and third movies. Um, I feel like the concepts that they were going for, like they they really tried to go for it, but for me, they didn't right. hit all the like all the notes that they were going for. Um, and I think one of the prime examples is the whole um, the the speech with um, Colonel Sanders, aka the architect, right? Where you, <laughs> yeah, you you have this guy just full on monologuing in a room, and what he's saying is actually it's a very interesting conversation that he's having. But the way that it's presented is kind of like if you're not really paying attention during that conversation, mm-hmm. you're just like, mm-hmm. what the hell is happening right now? <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I again, I think. I think they tried to go bigger than maybe they were they were capable of handling, but I like I can respect that, right? Like props to them for you know at least making the effort to have like a highbrow, like intellectual conversation within a punchy sci-fi movie, <laughs> right? Right, like, and, and especially people expecting it to be more of just a shooty punchy sci-fi movie with some you know, minor philosophical stuff embedded in it. Like it was like, no, in the right. second, third ones, they, they really did go for it. Um, but yeah, it, it felt like those maybe would have been better as like indie films um, as opposed to like blockbuster <laughs> films. <laughs> and they, they were in a sense, right? Like Joey, I mean, like, would you agree with that? They, they basically are giant indie films, right? Oh yeah, no, for sure. I think all four of them are like really heady, indie films masquerading in 200 million dollars i don't know what the budget for the first one is but i'm sure the two three at least two and three were enormous budgets right that like yeah. it's like oh we we built this three mile stretch of highway on the australian desert but also we're going to have a scene <laughs> where the architect talks to you talks at you for eight minutes right or like yeah, yeah there's you know we um we developed an entire new way to shoot film that's going to revolutionize the way that everybody shoots everything but also like what if we're all slaves? Like, what about that? It's just like, hold on, wait, hold, wait, what? what? Yeah, no, it was, it was definitely like, yeah, like I said, I think they reached a little too far. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I mean, to me, like, <laughs> and again, I'm glad you brought up the architect scene. That's the scene where I was like, oh, shit, I love this, right? Um, because that's my it's dream. It's a very smart <laughs> scene. Like, it's, it's actually a very compelling conversation. It's just packaged yeah. terribly. <laughs> well, that's, that's, the really, that's the really funny thing about John. I guess your perspective here is that, like, so many people you're you're the opposite of so many people because so many people are just like i know first movie's awesome second and third movie like it lost me I, i'm never gonna watch those again it makes the first movie worse and you're like mm, first movie pretty good but the second and third movie really puts it into place it's like hold on wait what <laughs> and then the fourth one i'm like oh i'm in love yeah. um yeah yeah, yeah. yeah chris what'd you have you seen uh resurrections i did i really liked resurrections cool. like it it, I, for me, my, my personal ranking would be the first one, then Resurrections, then probably probably two, then three. Yep, that's um, fine too. And, like, and the thing I loved about Resurrections was like it wasn't afraid to go after itself and also the yeah. movie industry. <laughs> it was just like like that part where like at the beginning of the movie when you know uh, they're they're talking about this game and <laughs> they can't get it or just the whole mm-hmm. meta commentary on what you know was what uh Lanich Wachowski no doubt had to go through to like get this one made <laughs> it's yeah just, it's like it and the thing that's that's so good so good about it is that it fits the character of the movie like the the philosophical topics that are being discussed but it's also a trenchant commentary on look 
we we tried to make this thing. <laughs> this is the only way we were able to make it. Yeah. I, does it work for you, though, like as a Matrix movie? I think that's the thing that a lot of people are kind of divided about, that they can see that it's a great sort of um, achievement of like of art, right? That it's it, mm-hmm. for all the reasons that you're saying. Um, it's it's hard to look at that. And it's not lazy. It's it's a very like it's a very thoughtful movie. Um but does it does it work as like a sequel to the Matrix, or does does it make you like look at the original Matrix any differently? Um, it doesn't really make me look at the original any differently. And uh, honestly, what I felt after watching um, Resurrections was was like I liked it, but it felt like it was like a four and a half five hours worth of movie that they had to tell in like two. Because yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's almost like here's the greatest hits, right? And then, but yeah. but like a lot of what made the original one you know, so good was like, there was time for that world to breathe. Like, you know, that whole, um, uh, Trinity escorting Neo to the, to the party. Like there's, there's an entire scenes where it's like, it's them just kind of walking around and then going and doing stuff. And like, and you get a feel for that world. Whereas resurrections was kind of like, okay, we got to bounce from scene to scene to scene and we got to get through them quick because <laughs> we're telling a lot of stuff. So yeah, it just, it just felt, it felt a little condensed, uh, compared to to the first one. We're spending a lot of time talking about movies that didn't come out in 1999, but it makes me wonder, is this the movie of what, John, you you and I know what we're going to cover, but also just Chris thinking about the movies that came out that year. Like, does this movie have the, the most lasting impact of any movie from that year? And has it spawned the most sequels? I'm, I'm struggling to come up with an answer to either of those. That isn't no. Well, I think culturally it's, definitely had the most impact like you i mean you can just say the matrix and people like most anyone you say that to will understand what you're referencing like Mm. it's it has become culturally like omnipresent and i and and then the ideas behind it too i think are also kind of um you know as we become more of an information society um you know people like are seeing now really like what this movie was about and you know i i like i read um i'm a huge fan of uh, william gibson um you know uh neuromancer kind, kind mm-hmm. of like the the godfather of, of cyberpunk and like and, yeah. that, and it feels like the matrix was kind of very similar in terms of neuromancer and that it really just kind of took this world that a certain segment of the population was aware of right but you know for the most part most people may not have been very internet savvy or even you know had a clue of like okay what what does like actual AI mean? Like what what would a conflict between you know humans and, and machines look like? And it really kind of introduced them to that. Yeah, I you know you're right, Joey. I, I was just thinking about this because a couple of days ago I heard someone say uh, a glitch in the Matrix in a completely unrelated. I don't even remember what it was. I think it was like on the news, right? I, someone was referring to like, well, yeah, like something that's, that's going thing, wrong, like, right? Deja vu obviously existed for like hundreds if not thousands of years as a concept, <laughs> but like that's the like the Matrix right. claim ownership of that right now. It's like it's the same thing. It's like that just is now a Matrix thing. The glitch in the Matrix, the deja vu. It just yeah, yeah, wild. Um, Chris, how like uh, as as the years have gone on, um, have you revisited the Matrix a bunch of times or or not at all? Have you shown it to any of your kids? Yeah, no. I like if it's on TV, I'll I'll sit down and watch yeah. it. Um, you know, even if it has commercials, uh, even though I hate commercials, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I did, I did show it to my kids. Um, and my, I think my older daughter would have been 12. My younger daughter was 10 and um, they, they liked it. Uh, they, they thought it was really cool. Um, I'm not sh- I, I think they followed most of the philosophical stuff yeah. uh, fairly well. Um, haven't shown them two or three yet. <laughs> uh, not, not quite sure. 
if they're prepared for that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it, it's 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 definitely something where like like it it's not it's not I have to make time to watch it like every year or something like that. But if it's on, it's one of those movies where I'll definitely you know tune in and watch it. Mm-hmm. Does it diminish for you over time, or do you still like it as much as you did the first time? Oh no, I still like it as much as I did the first time. Like it's for for me generally, if I like a movie, it's it's the same as if I like a book. Like I can go back and reread it again and cool, again. Yeah, yeah. And even if I know what's going to happen, right. like it's you know you, you still enjoy the experience of it happening. Yeah, there's something about the the sort of finale um, that I've always loved the, the the fight with um, with Smith and the subway and the I am Neo moment and or my name is Neo mm-hmm. sorry and God uh, damn it <laughs> fired <sorry. laughs> uh, and then also the the sort of like uh, the the Buddha awakening scene at the end where he like sees the Matrix and and deflects the bullets and is resurrected and all. I mean that's yeah that that stuff is is I'm a sucker for all of that stuff and I I can watch I can watch the whole ending and then of course like the the final scene with the telephone booth and the rage against the machine song. And well, I mean, like I watched this again last week and I still get chills of the, he's beginning to believe line. It's just like, it's like, I know it's coming. <laughs> I have, I have most of this memorized, both mm-hmm. like, you know, what happens and also like the dialogue. And that line still just like gives me chills. Like it's just, it's, Although, it's incredible. I, I will say it's kind of funny. Um, when my kids were watching it, we had to explain to them what a payphone was. <laughs> 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 you know, I do have a question related to that sort of. It never struck me. I've probably like this is no joke. I know people say this, but like I've probably seen this movie a hundred times. Like it's by far the movie I've seen the most. But I never thought about until last week how you call from the Matrix to like the Nebuchadnezzar. Like how do you dial a thing that's not on your plane of existence? And I made a joke on Twitter about like do you have to hit nine to dial out? But like I don't understand. Like it's just it seems like it would be a, a different set of rules like it's not even just like numbers it's just like it, I, how do you do it it's well I, I think the underlying theme which, which again is one of the really smart things about the movie is like it's a modem right like you're you're literally you know set, setting setting up this new transfer of information that before the internet was a thing like modems didn't exist like that wasn't mm. a thing right and so when you're in the matrix you know that's the, the phone is just the representation but this is the you know it's Essentially, if I had to break it down into technical aspects, like it would be okay. You're you're asking the code to implement a specific thing, and then there's probably some backdoor somewhere where if it gets this certain code fragment, you know, it pings a satellite relay somewhere. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has like a tracking signal or something like that, and then that's that's how they they get the consciousness in there, uh, which then begs the question: How fast are their transfer rates? Because a consciousness seems to. Have- <laughs> It seems right. like it would take up a couple petabytes. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting to me about the way the the film is aged and its legacy is like there is a lot of sort of first of all, there's a lot of really dumb things about like in terms of things that don't make any sense. Like the idea of humans being batteries. It's like what? Wait, that doesn't that doesn't work. You can't do that because like they don't generate energy unless you put energy into them. And whatever. So there's that element, and then there's like. A lot of the cringeworthy lines, especially from like Morpheus, right? Um, that that it's it's only because Lawrence Fishburne is so badass that they even work at all. Um, but but some of them are just sort of like, what? That doesn't make sense. Um, and yeah, the phone thing, as you say, and and the and the <laughs> the sheer amount of data <laughs> that would have to travel, all of that stuff, right? But you know, I think what's what's it's kind of a testament to it is that when 
the story is good enough, when the movie's good enough, like that stuff doesn't matter. You you can actually just bypass it and 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 embrace it. Um, I know, Chris, like you're the only one of us who's successfully like written science fiction. So, you know, when you have a cool idea that doesn't make logical or scientific sense, right? Like, how do you do you just like, are you just like, I'm just going to go for it and, and, and make it as entertaining as possible, uh, regardless, or like, have you have you run into that problem? Yeah, so so that's something where like it really there you you have to walk a very fine line because you want your you know sci-fi stuff to make sense, right? Like you want people to look at it and be like, "Okay, yeah, I could plausibly see that happening." But at the same time, you don't want to get so bogged down in the technical details that all of a sudden your your reader is reading an engineering manual <laughs> for made up engineering. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, I mean, granted, there are some authors that can do that and, and it's pleasurable to read, but they're few and far between. And like for me personally, for the most part, it's like, OK, I'm going to try to make this logically make sense. But if there's a certain thing that needs to happen, then I'm just going to have that thing happen. Because at the end of the day, it's my universe. <laughs> and, and as long as I tell a good story in it, then the, you know, the landscaping is just the landscaping. And, and I feel like a lot of people get hung up on that in that to write a good story, like, yeah, world building needs to be a part of it, but it's what the characters in that world do. Like your characters are so much more important than the technical details. Mm. So I, I have another sort of like of the, of the time question, because I, I'm, I've always been interested to explore this with people um who were old enough to have like been an adult at the time right to or at least that late teenager when they saw it and then sort of see the way that it, it's it's evolved um and i know like you're someone who who has been an advocate for um lgbtq plus uh community so i gotta ask you this like did you get the trans stuff the first time and if not like when did that kind of dawn on you? Because that took me a while to be like, oh, uh, I had to read some essays to be like, oh, yeah, I finally see this angle. And it's incredibly obvious, um, you know, that it's sort of a weird thing to have missed. Yeah, no, I, I definitely did not get it the first time I watched it. Like, it, it took me a while because and I'd read like, you know, trans friendly sci fi, LBGTQ friendly sci fi, mm -hmm. like where, you know, that was just accepted as as being who you are. I mean, it, like in anyone who's read Ian Banks's culture stuff, like <laughs> he goes through the whole gamut of human sexuality, like sometimes in the same person. <laughs> but it's um, I, I think it's one of those things where um, it needed to be done. And I, I, I'm hopeful that we're moving towards more of a society where like, it's easier for people to recognize those types of stories because they understand those types of stories need to be told rather than it having to be like, oh yeah, you know, I, it took me three essays and, you know, two PhD people explaining <laughs> it to me to, to figure it yeah. out. But then once I did, okay, yeah, I totally saw it. And so I, I, I think a big part of it is just the unfamiliarity with a lot of people um, in terms of uh, just trans issues and trans rights. And, and again, speaking, speaking of that at the time. Right. I mean, it's something that we taught, we touched on on the Keanu Club episode of Resurrections, like what these movies are about. I honestly think like what made me, like I think I probably heard it, but I think what really put it into perspective for me, because I, I didn't get that for a while. Um, but I think honestly, it was both Wachowski's transitioning and also just Jupiter ascending kind of being like a gender flipped matrix in a way um, where I'm like, oh, this it's kind of the same story. And I just I it took a while, but I do see it. And I think it's kind of like one of the better, more important, sort of more overt almost, you know, readings of the first movie. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there's some things that are so now just like mind-blowingly obvious that I feel I don't know, just like I was so blinded to it. Like the way that, you know, the 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 first movie ends with the close-up on the MF at the end, like it, you know, it says system failure and then it zooms in to just show M and F right before it cuts to to Neo. Um and I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. Um and then, you know, of course, also as you say, like we sort of refer to them as being quasi-indie films because they are very personal to the Wachowskis. And and again, right, I think that the the fact that like you know, they went through their own personal sort of um, evolution as these movies sort of told their story um, is one of the things that I also now like find, especially in the context of Resurrections, to be so um, sort of lasting about them, right? There's always a different kind of angle to to look at um, even just the first Matrix, but like really the whole series. Um, and, and I do also think that's kind of by design, right? That there's, there's just so many different ways um, of understanding the story. And... I find that really kind of lovely because really what it comes down to is like this idea of fluidity and universality of identity. And like, that's, that's, I think um, one of the sort of beautifully kind of encapsulated concepts that, that we find in all three of these. I also think, you know, for sort of lack of a better term, like this is one of the reasons why it kind of lost the bros, right? Like this was a very bro movie when it came out, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And then like the bros were like, yeah, man, reload is going to be rad. And they're like, Oh, why is there an orgy? Like, oh, why did that guy in the, why did Colonel Sanders just lecture me for eight minutes? And I'm like, fuck yeah, right? Um, because I'm weird. But but yeah, I, I do think there's almost a weird sort of like, I don't know, um, I don't want to say bait and switch because that sounds that sounds bad, but I feel like the Wachowski's kind of lured people into this into this world and then we're like, and we're going to tell our story now that you're here. Yep. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of admire that, right? As kind of a, as kind of a cool move to to pull up right well and, and that's one of the reasons why i like two and three because like i like the story that they were trying to tell yeah, <laughs> like, yeah I, right. I think i think it's fantastic it's just again I, I don't think it was executed quite as well as it needed to be well what i really appreciate about them is that there are very few directors who have like a blank check in hollywood i don't even know if they do anymore to be honest i think that probably what if resurrections if we are led to believe in resurrections that that's kind of what had to happen it does not seem like they are respected to the way that they should be after how much money they've made Warner Brothers. But with that said, to some extent, they have a blank check. And I appreciate them because they are willing to get as weird and out there and specific and not really friendly to the masses like jupiter ascending is real weird cloud atlas is real weird speed racer (laughs) is real weird and these are all movies that i love and i think to to think back to like 1999 or like even before that like 96 where they probably wanted to make the matrix and they're like well before you do this crazy high concept thing let's see if you can actually just make a movie first they make bound they're like okay bound rules okay so let's you can you can have a green light to do this thing but i like that they are they're financially successful enough that they keep getting to make movies, but they're like, we're going to make the movies that we want to make and not the movies that the masses necessarily want either. Like, and if you don't connect with it, that's fine, but this is the story that we want to tell. And it, you know, I, I hope you enjoy, but if you don't, you know, there's plenty of other movies. Right. And, and I think that's what, like, whether you hit or miss, that's how you tell a great story is you, you have to be willing to commit to your vision. Like, and, and I feel it's very, it can be very hard to do that in an industry like Hollywood, right? Where you, you need to get, you know, 15 different suits to sign off on something. And 
who knows if they care about the story you're trying to tell? Like right. for them, it's just dollars at the end of the day. Like, will this make us more money? And so that's that. That's why I think you know you're right when you said earlier that all of these are indie films. Like they these these are not your <laughs> typical blockbuster Hollywood films at all. The first one just happened to be that. Right. Right. <laughs> Christy, are you a fan of any of the other uh, Wachowski, like uh, Cloud Atlas or, or or Speed Racer, or any of the others in the in the in the canon? Um, I thought Speed Racer was visually really cool. Yeah. Um, no, not really sure it made a lot of sense, <laughs> but visually it's amazing. <laughs> like props props to the vision yeah. <laughs> and, and for realizing it. Um, I've never I haven't seen Cloud Atlas. Uh, I heard about it. And then um, I've been meaning to see Jupiter Ascending for a long time, and somehow I just haven't gotten around to it. Like I don't, I, I probably because I, I heard it got a lot of like really mixed reviews when it came out, and so then I was like, oh well, you know, I can watch it some other time. And <laughs> yeah, I should get around. And then life happened. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, right, exactly. Joey will tell you all about how great all those movies are. Uh... And also, Sense Eight, their TV show on Netflix is awesome too. I did watch Sense8. I thought Sense8 was really cool. I before we go, I have a um I, I have I, I dug this up and I found this um pretty fascinating. Do, do you Chris, do you remember seeing the Super Bowl ad for the Matrix? No, I don't. I, I vaguely remember this. And I and as I recall, it was um a very short teaser that featured uh Trinity um sort of swinging away from the exploding building right that like very cool shot where she crashes like into the camera mm-hmm. right where the where the where the helicopter yeah yeah, yeah. yeah the helicopter right. and, the, and then like the glass ripples and everything right and i remember that being featured um here's something i don't remember so i found i found this uh from the february 2nd uh or sorry february 1st 1999 um chicago tribune it is a review of that year's Super Bowl, which apparently was very boring. Um, I guess the Denver Broncos beat the Atlanta Falcons, and uh, it was 34 to 19. Oh, wait, that wasn't um, the, the middle of the seven Vikings Super Bowl wins in a row? <laughs> no, <laughs> not during the great. Are, are, are you in the Matrix? <laughs> the great Viking dynasty of the late 90s. No, actually, you know, honestly, if that, if, if we're in, if we're in January, February 99, that's the year that the Vikings drafted Randy Moss and won 15 and one and broke my heart for the very first time. So that's actually a very impactful personal super bowl to me in that regard so okay and and i know that you're a vikings fan because you said for the first time oh yeah (laughs) it's been nothing but heartbreak as you know as you're well aware welcome to the club (laughs) (laughs) so here's uh here's a paragraph from uh this review of the super bowl which is a i should say negative review of the super bowl uh it says the following uh fox broadcasting the game and earning what is claimed to be a record uh more than fifty thousand dollars per second per for its ad time or 1.6 million per 30 seconds seem to tacitly acknowledge that the ads have grown as important as the game itself to many viewers in the second quarter, Fox got caught coming out of one ad for a befuddling movie called The Matrix after the start of a play in which Denver quarterback John Elway threw a long touchdown pass. Viewers saw the denouement, a heartbreaking moment for Atlanta, but not the snap that started it. So um, the 30-second the Matrix ad had gotten the way of a John Elway touchdown pass. <laughs> Honestly, the ad was probably better. I'm sure it was. And uh, the Chicago Tribune uh, referred to it as a befuddling movie. Um, so, you know, this was several months before it came out. And I guess they were like, what? Uh, so there you go. That's it. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> 
Um, anyway, that I, th- I, th- I thought the NFL and Matrix connection was a, was a fun one to um, kind of end on. Before we go, Chris, do you have a uh, any other movie of the 1999 canon that you absolutely love that you that you would like to profess your love for? So I'm going to have to say, actually, The Mummy. Yes. Like, wow. and, and the reason why is, is okay, no no joke. It was it was on, uh, my wife had it on uh, TV on Saturday. And so we forced our kids to come and sit down and watch it. We're like, you, like, you need to watch this movie because Brendan Fraser is just such a criminally underrated actor. Hell yeah. Like, he's so good at what he does. <laughs> and, he, and he's always, you know, kind of typecast as this, like, you know, the goofable, the, the goofy doofus. But, like, he's, he's so good. And the, it, it really hit me when I was watching it um, over the weekend is, is that like, they don't really make movies like that. Yeah. yeah, Like the feel of the mummy is the feel of like a classic, like 1930s, 1940s adventure movie. And like from, from the score to the setting of the shots, like it is, it is a type of movie you don't see anymore. (laughs) And it's just, it's, it's really well done. Um, especially when you consider like the material that it's based on is, oh, it's a mummy. <laughs> like, I was cracking my kids up because I started calling the mummy the sand vampire. <laughs> the movie was going on. Because it's it's, I mean, he basically is. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Joey's never seen it, so that's going to be mummy. a fun episode. Um, we, it's yeah. You got to watch it. Yeah, he will. Oh, he's going to have to. It's it's going to be part of his uh, requirement for the for the show. Um, yeah, no, it's funny because that that movie. You're right. Is it's it's so weird, especially in the context of this particular year, because that year was a year where it was so cutting edge and movies were changing dramatically. And it is the most like just immersive throwback, like indulgent, you know, just campy over mm-hmm. the top, like Indiana Jones with like no pretension whatsoever. <laughs> right. It's it's fantastic. Um <laughs> It's just a fun movie. It wants to have fun. It's, it's revolutionary and <laughs> like how old timey it is, which is which is what I I love mm-hmm. about it. And and yeah, we we absolutely uh, stand Brendan Fraser um, uh, on this and every other podcast. Uh, he is the goddamn best. Yeah, it's well, it's, it's his physical comedy, like his physical skills, is amazing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Again, he doesn't get enough credit for it. Like he's so good. Agreed. Agreed. And then favorite movie of all time. All right, favorite movie of all time. Um, the original Dune. Wow. And I realize it is a terrible movie, but I love that movie so much. All right. So what did you think of the new one? I loved it. It was so I cannot wait for the second yeah, one. Cool. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, it it feels like they got everything that like makes Dune Dune and they brought it into the 21st century. Yeah. <laughs> Where, although I will say, if I don't get to see Josh Brolin carrying a pug while shouting release the atomics. <laughs> I'm going to be super pissed because <laughs> if he's going to be Bernie, yeah. I, I need to see some releasing the atomics with a pug. <laughs> and it's an interesting, I mean, just to, just to close this out, that's an interesting um, place to, to end it because I, I, one of the things I remember when I went to go see Dune was thinking like, yeah, this is the kind of movie that the Matrix helped make possible, right? Like, there's there's a sort of a, mm-hmm. there's a sort of uh, aesthetic and delivery to um, the way this movie is made and the way that like just Denis Villeneuve makes his movies in, in general. That like you see the Matrix DNA, right? Uh, in in a movie like that, right? It's well, well, it's it's allowing sci-fi to be more grand and spectacle without going full space opera like Star Wars, right? Like right. it's it, it's allowing them to tell a bigger story as but because if you think about it, a lot of sci-fi films like the concepts 
maybe you know pretty highbrow or pretty out there but in terms of the actual film itself like not a lot of that actually gets shown whereas the the new dune like they they brought that world to life and it, it was fantastic I, I kept telling my kids just wait till you see a worm show up just wait for the worm to show up <laughs> <laughs> um well well good good choices uh all around that that brings us to the end, Chris. It's been fun. Is there anything you would like to uh, promote before we before we uh, sign off? Um, if you like sci-fi, I wrote a book. It's called Otaku. Um, I got a blurb from William Gibson, who liked it, so that really kind of made my day. <laughs> <laughs> so, if you, so if you like sci-fi, please check it out. <laughs> and I I have read it, and it's good. Uh, Joey, any closing thoughts? No, I think uh, this is a great episode to start because, again, like you said, this is. Maybe my favorite movie. I think it's probably my favorite movie from 1999 easily. Although maybe not. We got a couple coming up that I'm really excited about. But I'm glad that we get to talk about it with Chris. And yeah, uh, something, something, something. There is no spoon. It's all downhill from here for Joey. Uh, we've <laughs> just covered the only movie he's going to love. And not... You want to retire on top of my game. Just like Tom Brady. Just like Tom Brady. No, uh, like Tom Brady, we also will be back uh, in, in, in this time in two weeks. Thanks, Chris. Uh, thanks, Joey. And we will catch you next time.